Are we recording? <laughs> oh yeah! It's like <laughs> a year from now. <laughs> Macho. Oh man, that's Vincy. I like that my kids know that I'm healthy and strong and fit, and that their mom is healthy and strong and fit. Going, okay, I can still get better without having to do a max effort every single day. Smashing yourself on the roller for uh, an hour, right? you're good by the next day, as long as you had a sandwich and a net. So today's episode will be uh, discussing the concept of polarized training. Uh, polarized training is, I would say, is mostly found in uh, endurance sports and specifically like, you know, just give examples, uh, distance running, cycling, um, triathlon, probably so then swimming. And just really, really generally, the main, uh, the main idea of polarized training is that you would perform the bulk of your training in what's considered the easy domain. And we'll get into that a little bit later. And you would perform small portions of your training in the intense domain. So it's really what you're, what you're basing it at. There's like um, most of your training will be considered really easy, really slow. And some parts of your training will be very hard, very intense, which would include the classic intervals uh, and non-sustainable type work. So there's three zones um, considered within the polarized training model. And I actually don't know who to credit. I don't know who to credit uh, the polarized training concept with. The most, the most popular person I know of and that I uh, deal with and we probably deal with is Steven Seiler. Um, and I believe he's a guy, I think he's in Norway and he did a lot of work, uh, a couple of decades ago with cross country skiers. And I think he's still probably, uh, is involved with that. It's Norway, right? Yeah. I thought he was from Texas. Oh, yeah, I know he, li- yeah, lives in Norway doing the research. Yeah. He's in Texas cause you can still hear the, <laughs> the little twang. Um, but yeah, he is, I, I believe he's, yeah, he's in Norway. I believe he does. He did most of his, um, his, his introductory research on this uh, with cross-country skiers. And um, I'll tell a story that he always tells is that one of the things that made him perk up, he says, is that when he was attending, you know, um, watching some of the, uh, the world's best cross-country skiers at the time, uh, he was there, I believe, just doing some, I'm not sure what he was there for, but anyway, he was watching and he just watched one of the best cross-country skiers in the world just come up to a little hill and then stop skiing and just kind of just walk his way up the hill like really slowly um and he i think he said he asked the coach as to why he did that and um he said well it's an easy day so it's supposed to be easy and he was like huh that's interesting so i just i just use him as an example because i think he's he's probably the most popular person that we know of uh, that goes through this so again polarized training the main idea is that there's three training zones or three zones that they classify intensity into Uh, The first one being zone one, um, and that's considered to be efforts that are below your first lactate threshold or lactate turn point, which is usually coincides with your first ventilatory threshold and usually coincides with heart rates between uh, probably, I think, I I don't know if it goes as low as 60, but probably 65 to upwards of 80%, maybe even a bit higher for some of the best uh, endurance athletes in the world. But for most people listening to this, the, the rule is probably 70, 75% of your max heart rate. And again, this is referring to you knowing your running max heart rate and you performing running, not you knowing your running max heart rate and you performing burpees. Okay. This is it's a different thing. 
The second, uh, the second zone is considered the zone between the first lactate and ventilatory thresholds, uh, or turn points, whatever you want to call them, and the second uh, lactate threshold, uh, ventilatory threshold. And then the third zone is every, what they would consider everything above your second lactate threshold uh, and ventilatory threshold. And the point at which that, that occurs varies uh, a lot between individuals in terms of percentage VO2, percentage heart rate. But again, all these models are developed uh, with, with cycling and treadmill running in mind. So again, the main, the main idea is that about 80%, they usually say 80 in terms of sessions, like so um, four out of every five training sessions is performed in zone one, where the session would be ranked as a zone one type session effort uh, and could be measured in terms of blood uh, lactate response or for measuring intensity as well as measuring uh, your heart rate throughout the session for intensity as well as asking you in terms of RPE. And then between 10 to 15 to 20% of the sessions will be performed in zone three, which again is based on uh, everything above the second lactate threshold. Uh, and that's the, I believe that they came to that understanding from trying to classify the training of, of, uh, of, of endurance athletes. And I think it started with Siler with uh, cross country skiers. And again, I could be wrong because I don't know. Um, but that pattern seems to emerge in a lot of sports from, from what he says. And the curious thing to me is that uh, it seems like it, it uh, from what he's saying is that it emerges, it, it emerged kind of almost naturally. They didn't say like these people were like, we didn't tell them to do it. They were just doing it. Um, and when they talk about it in classifying these intensity zones in terms of time, he, they usually say it's like 90, but well over 80% in terms of time spent uh, training is in zone one. And again, this is for endurance athletes. Um, so what we're really trying to talk about here or trying to talk about today is like, could you apply this model and this thinking and make it successful for a competitive fitness athlete? And when we say fitness, we mean CrossFit. And when we say fitness, we mean mixed modal. And when we say CrossFit, we mean fitness. And we <laughs> so just, these are all synonymous things. So can you take this model of, of, uh, of mostly easy, sometimes hard and successfully apply it? um to fitness athletes and where and then and and then uh, just try to tweeze out um what are some of the major considerations as to why this why this model could work for endurance athletes but why it may or may not work for fitness athletes so um so i think we'll just we'll just uh, classify this because we'll just say we're going to apply this to the training of an established fitness athlete not a beginner, someone who's like, again, like Tom, uh, you know, five, 10 years into training uh, for fitness and they're very competent. Uh, we're not talking about a complete beginner because that's a different, uh, a different story. And there's lots of research to show that beginners uh, respond quite favorably to just chronically intense training. So we'll say someone who's kind of sort of settled in their abilities, meaning that they're not gonna have gigantic shifts upwards just from showing up Monday to Friday. Um, so they're way past the beginner stage of ability and they have a somewhat, somewhat high training age. So that's, that's, that's who we're, that's what we're really going to be discussing today. Um, okay. So what's one of the, yeah, what's one of the main things you would, uh, actually another, another thing we have to consider, um, is that in, uh, in classifying the intensity, 
in, in a lot of the studies they do, they don't classify uh, weight training and strength training uh, into the 80-20 model from what I've read. There might be, again, there might be some studies where, uh, or some research projects that I haven't read or we haven't read and that did that and classified it appropriately. So they fit a weight training session for skiers or runners or cyclists into some intensity zone. But as far as I know, they don't, they don't include that. Um, they, they mostly just include in terms of the specific training. So that's a huge problem when trying to make sense of it for CrossFit, because obviously people that are doing, doing that sport, doing fitness, they're going to spend a lot of time uh, doing strength training, a lot more than an endurance athlete. So if you don't classify strength training sessions into the intensity distribution, it's already, you're really looking at having really small portions of your training that you're going to actually include. So that's kind of a, that's a little, throws a little curveball in there. Um, is there any other things we need to mention off the bat? I was just thinking you'd mentioned that <clears throat> all these zones are kind of based off like LT1, LT2 yep. and corresponding heart rates, for example. But in order to train at say 75% heart rate, you have to know what your max heart rate is for that modality. So if it's running, you have to know what your max heart rate is for running. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to CrossFit, there's you know, almost endless amount of modalities, you're not going to know your max heart rate for each modality. So you can't use that metric to gauge effort. So then you'd have to use perceived exertion instead. Right. So that probably changed it a little bit, obviously. And that's something you have to take into consideration because if you're trying to use your max heart rate, that's not going to work or percentage of max heart rate. Yep, exactly. And in the one study where we all, uh, we referenced, not we referenced, but we could reference easy when we post this, um tom scroll it down <laughs> you can put that in the links the, the study um anyway but they did classify that right because they wanted to for these skiers they followed for however long of a period i can't remember it was like four or six weeks and they they class they tried to classify their sessions uh intensity distribution based on using heart rate metrics using lactate metrics and using self uh self-evaluation from the skiers themselves of rpe and each one of those metrics lined up perfectly with one another, um, which is uh, which, which is obviously really good. Um, but then you would also the the real, this, yeah, this, it, it's just it's good that it lines up like that because they're obviously representative things. Um, and but obviously these are not amateur skiers either that he was following. So these athletes are attuned to knowing I'm trying hard. I know what's happening. Um, you would need to tell them that like yeah your lactate is probably pretty high here. They're like I know. Like I, I can feel it. I understand. I'm really in tune with this modality because this is all I do. Um, so, but I, which what Scott's getting at is that, yeah, uh, in CrossFit using, using lactate as metrics is one, um, not doable for one, um, because <laughs> you're not going to just have people finish their wall balls and, and then prick their earlobe or prick their finger. Um, it's like, wait one second. I need to get this blood from you before you go to the, to go to the rower. Um, and same thing with heart rate, uh, in CrossFit, it's, it's a bit, I would say it's a, it's a much more feasible metric to use heart rate would be, cause at least it could give people some ideas. Um, but there's a lot of problems with heart rate in CrossFit because of body orientations and then obviously holding your breath, uh, and the slowness of movements. And then potentially it's not being representative of how hard you're working and whatever. It's better than using lactate for one, because you can actually easily apply it to people. Uh, but the one thing everyone can apply is something they carry with them all the time is their perception of effort. That's, that's the best metric to probably use in CrossFit. If you're going to try to classify intensity, 
um, into zones. And actually in the link that in, in, in that article, they actually come up with a, um, a nice little uh, scale of uh, it's an instant adjusted board scale on a scale of 10. And they allow athletes to classify based on zone one, zone two, zone three, based on their RPE. And that's how they, that's how they got those metrics, but all those metrics in terms of blood lactate heart rate and RPE were the, were basically the exact same uh, across the board, which is quite, which is promising. Uh, okay. So first I would say um, one of the, one of the problems <laughs> potentially with uh, just before we get into why it could work, but which we might not even get into <laughs> uh, one of the problems with RPE in novel scenarios, right? Um, and so if you're going to use RPE as the metric of equating intensity and me trying to measure intensity in terms of zone one, two, three, one of the problems is that um, like, if again, you use it, you think about someone who's a skier and they ski all the time, their understanding of what R what RPE is for them is probably a really, really educated understanding. They understand this modality. They understand how hard they're working. They get it. So like, I know exactly, I know I'm at an eight out of 10 right now. I understand this to the T because I know what's coming. I know how hard I can work. I have all these, I have so much experience to build this off in CrossFit. That's way different. Um, because many times it's a novel scenario you're working in. So it could be, it, it'll, it would definitely be hard, I would say, um, to accurately classify uh, what, the, what a good RPE measurement is um, for any one thing, anyone, at, at any given time. But then usually they do the RPE measurement based on the overall session. It's how they would, how they would rank it. But I think you've all done that. It's like it could seem, it could easily seem that it's uh, – quite easy uh, or it could seem that it's quite hard and it just it wouldn't be as precise as you just saying okay imagine you just use the biker all the time you'd be really good at classifying what your rpe ranking is because you'd have such an intimate understanding of it um whereas with the novel scenarios presented just as a course of being involved in crossfit is that uh, it could have a much more i would say i would probably say you're going to have a much larger uh, standard deviation in terms of accuracy like, let's just think of what's some of the pros that could come out of this for people that are going to go that, are, that would that would try to classify uh, and try to do, you know, 20% of their sessions in CrossFit being uh, really intense sessions. And those people know what that means. They're really hard, challenging, you're breathing really hard, your respiration rate's really high. And there's points in the session that are, you probably know are unsustainable, and then you have to take breaks and whatnot, versus having sessions that are, what you would classify as really easy. Why could that potentially be a good thing? I think um, just like you said or stated that it came about naturally that these cross-country cross skiers were doing a lot of their sessions. It wasn't a planned out thing. They just did a lot of their sessions really easy. If you had a CrossFit athlete that was spending a significant portion of their time training, not just trying to get an hour in every day, if they're spending two to three hours each day training, it would naturally fall into that because there's no way that you could rock at a hundred percent effort all of the time. Like we go into that too in our uh, at, was it the fitness camp. When you, when you're like, when you're going a hundred percent all the time, you're never going a hundred percent because your body's kind of right down regulates to the point where it's a sustainable effort. So mm -hmm. going into the, uh, into the training, knowing that this is going to happen and you intentionally separate those efforts allows you to go at a higher effort. Go ahead, Tom. 
Well, I was just going to kind of feed into Jason and say, um, when you, to answer your question about what would be the benefit of doing easy sessions sometimes is actually just taking a break from pushing yourself hard as an athlete. So thinking back to some of my training when I was doing 10 sessions a week, um, at the most volume or whatever, you would usually throw in one or two easy, uh, 60 minute sessions, uh, mostly erg based and maybe some like core activities, but those sessions I actually look forward to a lot of the times because it was a break from the regular routine and it almost felt meditative in a sense. So then it helps you to go into the next one and you feel I'm ready to go hard now versus um, just trying to force it all the time. Yeah. Good point. Um, and then to Jason's, what Jason was saying, I think one of the kind of, um, so maybe, maybe what a lot of athletes in CrossFit do, right. Is at, over time, as they get fitter from doing um, more and more intensive work, right. What ends up happening potentially, right. Is that that average relative intensity they're working at goes down relative to the task just as they get fitter. Right. So, but I don't, I don't think it, I don't think it really approaches the, uh, the, the zone one threshold in terms of, uh, what Siler and them are talking about here. Um, but it would move from, again, saying that let's just classify it. They're working at like nine and a half, nine out of 10 initially to perform Fran in three minutes. Uh, after five years, Tia Claire Toomey is probably working at seven out of 10 to perform Fran in three minutes, right? Whereas, but again, she's still going to have a heart rate and a lactate score, likely, likely that's higher than uh, what they classify as their baseline. But it's totally different comparing, trying to compare running modalities to squatting. Um, so that's why we would suggest you probably just have to use RPE, but even with that, if you, if you actually tried to have her experience what an RPE of, uh, of below of at or below that first lactate ventilatory threshold is in a cyclical modality, and then had her go and try to replicate that same RPE in a mixed scenario, it's still going to be way slower than a three minute frame she's still going to go, wow, I probably got to, I got to go like probably do this in sets of three and take five minutes. Like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, I don't know. We don't want, I don't, I don't want to get into like why training easy could help and what, what physiological aspects it helps, but just to quickly uh, just describe it. So if you just, if you just took an, an endurance athletes and you knew what their lactate threshold was, um, what you would end up seeing over time, right, is their ability, the speed with which an athlete can run, an endurance athlete, or how speed at which an, uh, a cyclist can cycle will increase at that exact same physiological threshold uh, to the point where you're going to have more and more lactate production you're, than you're going to have lactate consumption. So the speed at which that occurs is going to increase. That's, that's just an easy mark of, a, of, the, of the work um, becoming more efficient. So they're able to do more work at the same physiological threshold than they were before. And there's lots of reasons for that, right? So you get to experience just really simple reasons, but um, uh, you, like if, if you get to experience so much time performing the same movement over and over and over and over and over, your brain and your mus neuromuscular system get really efficient at performing that movement. And that's one of the large reasons why you would want to perform a lot of easy training is you because you provide the neuromuscular system time to become more efficient at the movement and therefore every like minute of work becomes less expensive at the same work rate so that's what you're going for okay is become efficient 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 um 
but given the modalities we're talking about, right, running and running and biking, you can you can easily run slow and achieve that threshold within that one modality. Um, and same with cycling, you can go fast in cycling, you can go slow in cycling. It's very simple to do. It just requires uh, restraint. Um, in CrossFit, it's not like that. Uh, you, like, if you were to say, okay, I want, <laughs> I want to perform air squats below my first lactate turn point or my first lactate threshold, uh, one, again, it's, all, it's really hard to classify, but um, two, you would just go like, um, how many repetitions of squats do I have to perform to get the same, to, to follow the same logic in why 80-20 works in endurance training? Like how many reps do I have to perform of the air squat before I achieve that potentially diminishing returns in terms of efficiency? Like, is it like 500 air squats a week I have to perform to achieve my efficiency <laughs> uh, before I start going, okay, I don't need to do more now because it's actually not worth the time I'm putting in. So I'm maximally efficient in the air squat. Um, and then you go, okay, well, what about deadlifts? And then what about the weight of the deadlifts? And then, okay. So, um, that's where I think the, that's where I think it really breaks down in terms of trying to make sense of it is trying to go, okay, so, uh, so let's just, just someone, someone think of a, of a pro argument for that as to why 80, 20 could work in terms of developing efficiency in movement. Cause that's really one of the main things you're trying to do and efficiency in terms of energy cost to perform one repetition. And then what's the con? I think I just made the con. So someone give me some pros. Like what's another way of thinking of it? I have an, I have an idea of another way of thinking of it, but what's something else? Well, we kind of talked about it uh, in previous discussions, but, but when you're talking, like there's certain movements in CrossFit and a lot of movements in CrossFit that can only happen at a certain speed. So then you have to almost remove any other sport-specific um, like you got to take it out of the sport specific scenario for, so for example, like a ring muscle up, for example, if you're training those, maybe 80% of the time, if you really need to work on efficiency, 80% of the time you're training them not fatigued. And then 20% of the time you're training them in a fatigue sports, uh, sports specific setting where you're mixing it with double unders, power cleans, power system, whatever, right. Or yeah. doing it in a man, in an Amanda mm -hmm. setting. But for the most part, if, if efficiency is the key or the thing that you need to strive for, uh, and you need to do lots of volume in order to achieve that efficiency. You got to remove it from the sports specific scenario mm -hmm. and do it in a controlled setting where you have structured rest times and um, specific uh, like reps per set for that movement. Okay. So that's okay. I think now you mentioned that I think we need to classify it even further. So we almost just let's, let's just consider this in terms of designing AMRAPs. Let's just, cause it's going to get, it's way too complex if we start trying to classify 80, 20 in terms of ring muscle ups. Cause then you go, well, the energy utilization of one ring muscle up is still way higher than LT1 is ever going to be. Sure. Um, it just is. Um, so we, I think we should just classify it in terms of designing the conditioning interval work capacity sessions solely. Uh, I think that's really all talking about it now. I'd say, okay, it's, let's just, let's just focus on that area and just see. I, th I think if you know the athlete really well, you can start to take their proficiency in, in a movement into account. So say someone, someone looks really good. And I mean, this is a completely subjective measurement, but someone looks really good in a movement for X number of reps. And then you switch it up by giving them 
a recovery piece on the rower and then you go back to something else. And so they're never really hitting that time to exhaustion kind of measurement. They're just getting in a lot of work, but not sacrificing the, um, their positioning, their movement. So they're just working on proficient movement. <laughs> That's pretty hard to do. Yeah. So just give me an example of what you're talking about. Cause I, I do agree with you. I think it's really like, you know what that is in your head, but then you start obviously understanding you're like, there's so many things coming at you going, well, that, that won't work. This, this, that so just maybe just give someone an example of what you're talking about there in so, terms of the training session. So you're saying, uh, I would say, okay, if someone has, um, let's use wall balls cause they're a great example. Um, Someone can, if you know the athlete really well and their mechanics are good, but their fatigue uh, ramps up with this given movement, you're like, okay, I'm going to give you a set of 10, and then you're going to do um, 10 calories at a given pace on, on the ski. And then you're going to do a, a set of 10 wall balls again, 10 calories on the rower, set of 10, 10 calories on the bike. So you're, you're, you're taking, you're giving them their best reps, and but you're giving them a set pace on the, on, on the urge to kind of help them not burn out so they go back to it kind of thing that's that's off the top of my head um yeah so again just if we're going to go through the idea of those uh the work capacity scenarios right so the way you would write like a like a a zone one crossfit style scenario is yeah you would have to one you would have to include ergs a lot it probably would be good to use a heart rate so people can start learning a heart rate monitor to start learning like going, Oh wow. I'm, I'm actually having a much higher cardiac response than I think. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, cause then you're starting to think of, okay, you're going to have to do like, okay, you, one, you need to know the person's performances on the ergs. So you would go, okay, I know Tom's scores. So Tom's going to perform 60 minutes of 50 calories on the rower. Um, and he's going to row at like, or he's going to row a thousand meters in the row. Or he's going to row two Oh five. So Tom knows that's really slow. And then he's going to perform like, uh, a really slow bear crawl for a hundred feet. And then he's going to perform like, um, like a hundred single unders or something, but he might have to break in the middle of single unders. Initially, that's what you're going to have to do because you're going to want to try You're going to have to try to see how you respond to this. Cause I can, I'm guarantee you as soon as you start performing movements that have eccentric components in it, your heart rate is going to go so much higher than you think it's going to go. And you feel like you're not doing anything. So that's why it's like the heart rate is a challenging metric, but this is just performing air squats. And now you're like, okay, well I want to perform like easy work with 225 pound cleans. And you're like, you can't do that. You just can't. Um, so then, like again, the, the thinking, the logic thinking, okay, you turn down the intensity of that modality from an intensive zone three in running or cycling and you tone it down to zone one where you just run slow, bike slow. Like, is there value in doing dowel hang squat cleans to improve your, I'm like, right. You automatically know it changes the movement too much. In my opinion, it changes the movement too much to, 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 to follow that logic of, well, because running is still really similar, running slow, running fast. Um, cycling is really similar, like cycling slow, cycling fast. But like doing hang cleans with like a 25, 35, 45 pound bar at a slower cadence, how does that transfer? How, how does that transfer to you being better at performing DT? Because that's what you want, right? You want to be better at performing DT at the high intensity version because that's what counts. 
So how does that work, right? Or is it better to just segment it off and go, maybe I should just work at the high, like work at a higher intensity, but maybe just don't work to failure, right? So would you think of like the trickle down effect, right? So you work more intensely for shorter durations and it trickles down to you becoming more efficient across the board in the CrossFit sense of things. I think the durations would have to just be short enough that you're not breaking down, that you are developing those, those, like the idea of doing the 80% at a, at a, like where you're improving your mechanics and you're getting very proficient at the movement and very efficient. So you'd have to keep your high intensity pieces at a short enough duration that you're not breaking down, that you're not sacrificing something or doing something weird that you now you're costing a lot for each second of, of movement. How long would those easy sessions have to be in order to get the desired effect? Do you know what I mean? For, for that training stimulus, like you have so many different modalities you got to work through it and try and improve movement economy at an easy zone one effort. And you're going to have to pair them with ergs or whatever to kind of break them up to ensure you're not compromising integrity of the movements and getting into a higher work rate than you should be. Those, those, those training sessions are going to be super long. So it depends on how much time you have, right? Yeah. So one of the main, one of the main upsides, right. To doing slow, uh, to do zone one training and running and cycling is that you can perform a lot of it. You can easily go out and cycle for four or five hours as long as you have the right setup and the right bike and whatnot. And you could easily go out and run for 90 minutes, two hours. It's fine. Right. You can just go do it. Um, but you, you're, you just think of it like your brain and your neuromuscular system is, a, is downloading that information for two hours, four hours straight to make that single movement more and more efficient. And there's not, which we've discussed, I think, in the last episode, there's not one movement in CrossFit you can do that with. You can't do that. So then you have to go, um, how many reps of air squats or how many knee, deep knee flexions should I spend in this non-specific scenario to try to make myself more efficient at the sport. So if you, cause you're like, I need the idea here is you need to perform a lot of training volume to make it work. But again, how, again, how many hinges of the deadlift and how many hinges with a kettlebell do I want to spend trying to follow this method? Um, where that like thinking about five, 10 years down the road, are those reps going to be called wasted reps? When I look back and go, man, I think I wasted my time doing that when I should have did something different. So that's like, again, performing a lot of volume in zone one in cycling and running clearly works for people that do it. Um, it's not the only way to do it because not everyone agrees with polarized training, but uh, it clearly works. Um, but again, thinking of that with CrossFit modalities, is there value to doing that? And I'd say the overriding answer is no. Um, because I don't, I don't believe that's the best way to develop efficiency in movement, um, and ease of movement and then confidence in movement. I don't think that's the best way to do it with mixed work. It's just really hard to make sense of, right? When you start thinking about it, um, even if you just start classifying it in terms of RPE, I don't think there's a downside at all to just slowing down, right? When you're doing, even if you're doing mixed sessions, like there's no, there's nothing wrong with just going a little bit slower, just trying to make things legitimately make them perfect because there's, it's still really similar to the, the speed you're going to go. Um, so instead of doing like uh, something that should take you 10 minutes, you do it in 11 or 12 minutes and you just go a little slower. 
I think that that could be fine, um, but it's still not going to fall into a zone one effort when you start classifying it. Okay. Any other comments on the efficiency aspect of movement? But again, like when you think about it, the um, what ends up happening, right, which I said initially, is that like you're, the cyclist can cycle faster at their second lactate threshold. Um, but you can almost be guaranteed that following the CrossFit idea of doing more and more intensity over the course of three or four or five years, they're going to be able to perform more work if you were to classify a lactate threshold, second lactate threshold in mixed work. Or if you, if you couldn't do it through lactate, maybe you did it through something else, maybe through like uh, use Moxie for an oxygen saturation level. Maybe that changes, right? Maybe the heart rate response, if you're just going to use that as the same metric on the same test over and over, it's going to be different. Uh, and it's going to have to be different because it's perceptually different because people know it's easier. Five years later, you're like, man, this is really easy to do at this pace. And knowing that perception is, is really well connected to physiology, you're going to see differences underneath as well. So going intensely does make people more efficient in CrossFit for sure, because it's, it's everywhere. You could, you could never say it doesn't work. Um, and it's, it's, so it's like, as like I said, it's like a trickle down approach as opposed to, um, the other polarized system. As far as like efficiency of movement and when it comes to things like muscle ups, et cetera, it, within CrossFit and when you're like pairing them in AMRAPs, um, do you think or feel that by trying to come up with as many different movements to pair together? So say like muscle ups and we pair it with cleans pair it with handstand push-ups pair it with wall balls etc you try to come up with so many different types of amraps and that will help to improve the efficiency of that of muscle ups in this example so by pairing it with all these different movements giving them as many scenarios as possible you're trying to improve um, the efficiency of that movement that way uh i don't uh, I would, I would be guessing. I would yeah. say if anything, the concept would be, um, you think of it in, uh, in like a, a small, a small frame of you're trying to improve muscle ups. You should just focus on muscle ups, on muscle ups, on muscle ups, on muscle ups to make them repetitive, consistent over and over and over and over. And then as you add other modalities into it, I don't, I think you're, pro you're providing more like uh, a broader scale of skill with the muscle up. Mm -hmm. in basically being able and like think of it like the stability of the skill um right. but i don't i don't know if you're going to make it more efficient per rep i think you're just you're just going to find ways to be able to perform the movement in different scenarios um so what i was i understand like as far as improving efficiency doing the muscle up by itself but i'm saying beyond that it's so like you've done it by itself it, it's obviously an efficient movement in a non-fatigue scenario but then as time goes on and really increasing the frequency to it in combination with other movements. Like sometimes I think of it as it's possibly like reinforcing the ability and possibly making it more efficient. Yeah. You have to define first, like we, you, um, you have to define what efficiency means and what yeah. you're basing efficiency off of, um, to say if it's getting more efficient as opposed to like just perceptually feels better. Yeah. Um, because you can do it in any scenario, but if you start breaking it down to just going like how many ATP molecules is required for me to perform the one muscle up, um, 
like you almost go like, I'm, I'm just becoming a better performer. I'm not actually more efficient. I'm just a better performer now because I know how to change things about. But when I do perform that muscle up, it's like I can change my movement a little bit based on if my abs are gassed or if my grip is smoked or something like that. But like, are you really making the muscle up more efficient at that point? Or are you just, like you say, you're just learning how to become a better performer Work around it. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that experience in the, uh, in the sport thing. Cause you know that certain, certain movements are going to be tested together very commonly. Um, I mean, cross is not CrossFit is novel each year, but it's not because it's been around for, um, how many years now as a, as a sport, like, you know, certain things are, are often paired together and certain things are valued higher. So, um, when you're, when you're training for the sport and you're at that level, um, you're going to be exposing yourself to novel scenarios that you expect coming. So it's not like you're going in blind and going into the idea of changing up a movement. Like when you expose someone to doing heavy deadlifts before ring muscle-ups, Right. If they've never had that experience before, they don't know that it dramatically changes your efficiency in the movement. You just don't have the same muscles working at the same speed. Um, so knowing that you're going to have to make your sets smaller from exposure to that environment beforehand, that's just, that's just performance. Like Michael was saying, it's, it's all experience it has not much to do with the individual movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, if, again, if you were just to think about like, this is how fast I can run at my lactate threshold and I don't know the course I'm running versus I've run it a hundred times and my lactate threshold speed is the exact same. Like you're going to know and be comfortable pushing in certain aspects because you know what's coming and you have this anticipation of what's going to happen and how it's going to go versus if it's truly novel for you, your ability to run the ride that line is going to be quite, uh, it's going to be, it's not going to be as good, right? So it's a performance metric variation as opposed to a physiologic metric, um, just through experience, like Jason was saying. Um, yeah, and then like the, another thing in terms of just classifying intensity in a zone one, two, three, if you were to do that, with not with, and this is why we said we wanted to do it with people who are experienced because they should have an understanding of their level of efforts and how hard things are to them. Um, because like, uh, again, it, uh, what, what I submitted earlier, I believe that just because the nature of CrossFit being more novel all the time, it would be harder to accurately classify RPEs, especially if you're in that, like, if you're trying to say, like, is it, was it easy enough? Um, very unlikely. Is it going to be not hard enough to fit into zone three? It's probably going to be most of a problem of, was it easy enough to be fit into zone one? Um, so given that it's novel scenarios are probably more challenging to accurately measure that given that RPE is probably the best metric to use. Uh, you just have to imagine trying to classify that intensity zone intensity ranges with, with beginners uh, in CrossFit, it would be impossible uh, if you were to ask them like, how hard was that for you? And like, uh, like at a scale of 10, what was that? They'd be like, Oh man, that was probably a one. You're like, well, dude, you're like bleeding because <laughs> I think it was more than the one. You're probably going pretty hard. Um, yeah. And then someone, and another person might go, man, I was like 10 out of 10. Like, yeah, but you're still talking to me and you're on the rower. Like you're, you're not even done the workout yet, but you said it's 10 out of 10. So, okay. Um, it would just be, it would be really hard to, to get accurate measurements from, uh, from a beginner in terms of using RPE, unless you really educated them. But even then it wouldn't be accurate because they don't know they don't, they don't have experience with the modalities to know 
what it's supposed to feel like. And then like Jason was saying, how to anticipate ahead of time, what's going to happen afterwards to know, am I actually gauging my effort correctly here? Because my effort has to flow into the next piece. It can't just be this thing on its own. It has to flow into the next thing. And then that thing has to flow into the next thing. Okay. Um, so again, just to reiterate, the polarized training model is three zones, generally differentiated by ventilatory and lactate thresholds, and can be uh, done by heart rate. If again, you're just using one modality, that being cycling, uh, running usually, and can further be broken down into zones based on RPE, which what we're saying here is probably the only way you're going to be able to do that in a CrossFit scenario is to use RPE as the measurement. Um, I guess the last, the couple things, the last thing would be, uh, one of the last things would be that like, what's the harm in saying, okay, like if we just take the pro side of yes, this could work in terms of designing work capacity and condition conditioning sessions in CrossFit that are 80, 20 polarized makeup. So again, 80% of the sessions are easy. What's the harm in honestly saying month, like Tuesdays and Saturdays are really intensive CrossFit sessions. Like, like, yeah, I guess the, the argument would be like, how would you go? That's not enough. That's insufficient. If Tuesday and Saturday mornings, assuming someone's training 10 sessions a week. So two of them are like really, really hard interval sessions or really, really hard conditioning type sessions. It's because you can't, you're going to be, you're not going to be able to include enough repetitions of enough variation on the movements people need to practice to start, to start moving them up the, the efficiency scale. I think that's one of the main things um, and just by nature of it. Um, but that could be the argument. Like why, why aren't, why is Tuesday and Saturday insufficient for you? The one upside to doing that would for people would be, I think you would actually have people actually try harder and, and do the intensity that you want them to do. Um, because one, again, one of the pro, one of the pro sides of this, uh, just speaking from someone who follows this uh, idea or followed it for a long time, endurance training is that when you do intensive work you look forward to it like i'm like i'm excited to go hard to to go hard i'm trying to do that like i'm really excited to do it uh whereas in crossfit i just found for myself that um i knowingly just slowed down because i'm like i'm not i'm not okay with trying really hard right now because uh, i'm a little bit i'm just i don't want to i don't want to i don't want it to be that hard again today so i'm going to slow it down a bit and to go again whether that makes a difference like going a little bit slower whether that makes a difference in the long run, who knows? But if you chronically do that, uh, I don't know that that's a really good thing for your peak level performance. So two things being, why would Tuesday and Saturday be not be enough? Uh, and we're thinking like these sessions are 60 to 90 minutes of interval-based intensive CrossFit work, including everything. Um, and if you keep, and yeah, so why wouldn't two days a week be enough? And wouldn't you assume people would try harder in those two days? I think of it as um, with the single modality versus having multiple modalities. If you were to have just two days of really intensive work, you would have to cover a lot of movements. And then most of it, like how I think of it is like most of your easy sessions would have to be just like ergs or bear crawl, like you said, or step ups, et cetera. But then on those hard days, you have to include muscle ups and cleans and heavy snatches and box jumps and burpee box jump overs, et cetera. 
in order to cover your basis. I could be wrong, but um, just thinking about that and then like the question I asked before about knowing what it feels like to do movements after other movements and trying to mix up all of those, I think it would be really hard to keep track of. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I was just pu putting it up there as like an argument to go, how come this wouldn't be enough? And just wanted to see yeah. you guys bat it down. Cause I don't agree that, that if someone's training 10 sessions a week, that uh, Tuesday, Saturday mornings would be sufficient for them um, to, to develop the, the, like the optimal training scenario for a CrossFit athlete to get the best development out of them. I don't think that would be it, but uh, yeah, I just want to hear arguments against it. Cause that really would be the main argument, I guess. Just the, just the thinking out loud, what would be a good percentage, like 50% of your days of your sessions? Like, because, because it, it will change throughout the year. If you know, your your competition schedule too and then I think, in, I th each yeah. individual would also because if you're a master's athlete like holy shit that's a completely different game like you, you maybe you do have 20 years of experience with these movements maybe two days of intensity is enough yeah right. i think oh, there's a the lot of variabilities sorry in the context of those master's athletes they're they're not going to be doing 10 sessions a week most likely right because they just they can't handle it so maybe two tough training sessions, although it's still probably not enough is a higher proportion of the total training than say someone like Tom, right? So they may need less intensive training days than Tom does because they're just not training as many total hours. But what to, to back to your question, what is, what is right for them? It's hard to distinguish, right? It's hard to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it is right. And then, cause then you have to assume that, uh, one, you have, you got to make lots of assumptions, right. To make it, to make the logic work from the 80, 20 system, the polarized system to carry it across. But is that you have to assume efficiency in movement develops the same way in cyclical movements as it does in non-cyclical movements. And then you also have to assume efficiency deteriorates in the same way, same rate. Right. So you have to assume that if I don't run as much, then I'm going to have noticeable changes in my running in the cost of running one kilometer now at this pace i'm, I'm going to expect my heart rate to be higher i'm going to expect my oxygen consumption to be higher because it's just more expensive for me to, for me to run a kilometer at matt brady's 515 pace like i'm not as fit as matt so i can't do that um but in crossfit you're gonna it's like is it going to deteriorate in the same rate in the same way and i just don't know right um again jason and i battled this out last time but just talking about like what's an actual universal basic income, oh, sorry, universal uh, motor unit recruitment pattern is running, right? Um, so like in, again, just overhead squats with the barbell is different. So if you're trying to think of how do I become efficient in doing the overhead squat with a barbell, is it going to be the same process of accommodation and adaptation as running? And is it going to be the same detraining process as running? Um, and those questions, I can't, I don't know those answers. I would just, I would off the top, I would just say no as my default answer, but I don't know whether that's right or wrong. Um, and then the, the other thing, right, which we, which we discussed before is that the inability to have appropriate scaling of intensity within the movement and still have the movement remain somewhat similar to the movement you're trying to compete in is basically gone in a CrossFit scenario. Like how do you do kipping pull-ups in zone one? 
Like you can't, you just, you can't slow it down enough unless you're going to use like tons of bands um, and just start doing butterfly banded pull-ups. Um, or you're going to, again, you're going to do deadlifts at 35 pounds, 45 pounds um, and just do like reps and reps and reps of that uh, to try to make the movement again, the movement speed, the kinematics of the movement looks similar, but then you're missing a lot of the, a lot of the nuance in the movement by not doing it at different loads and not, you're just missing the nuance of going this, I need to drop it here. I need to pause here. I need to do, it's like, there's a lot of different performance characteristics involved in CrossFit and fitness than there is in, uh, again, running a marathon, running a 10 K biking, uh, like 180 kilometers. There's a lot of different things in there. Even within those single modalities, they take away all the, the variables. Everyone runs on a treadmill when they're doing their measurements. Everyone like, cause you can't do the same measurements even day to day on the same course. It's going to be different. Yeah. What? Yeah. In, in most science scientific studies, right. They need to control as much as they can. So they want to control the temperature of the room. They control the bike. They control the seat height. They control everything. Um, like I remember looking like when we were, uh, at the, at the yeah, Canadian Olympic park last year and they were talking about, like doing force, like using force plays to assess vertical jump mechanics and the ACL and whatnot. Like they, 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 uh, they standardize the force plates by like putting the same amount of weight on each force plate to make sure it gives the same reading, like every periodically to make sure everything's correct. And they had the ground underneath the force plates reinforced with something. So it was super, it was like super steady. And then when they were doing isometric tests um, to try to, for some EMG measurements, they would like, um, again, they would write, they would uh, draw certain parts in the person's leg that had to line up with this line here and there because they're trying to remove as many variables as possible. So you're not getting the wrong answer and tricking yourself because one of the easiest things to do in science is to convince yourself you're right. Uh, and it's, it's really easy to do um, so that they, they try to take as many, things as possible to remove that so we'll go okay the only difference here is the independent variable and this is what we're trying to isolate but you got to do a lot to isolate that um and just the problems we've just mentioned in crossfit um if you were yeah again if you were try if you were if you were just trying to isolate okay people are going to go intensely versus people not going to go intensely you're going to have to have people follow a normal crossfit training program and you're going to have to have people follow an 80 20 training program but then you're going to have to equate the total volume between movements between sorry between um groups right and then so that each move each group experiences the same amount of actual workload and then you're going to have to keep like their strength training the same and whatever so it's it's impossible to get an actual good study of that and which siler and them mentioned in the article right they don't put they don't do they can't do uh randomized studies on this or they don't do it they just usually have to do observational studies because how many elite athletes are going to allow you to take over their training for us, they're just not going to, the coach won't allow it to happen and the athlete won't allow it to happen. So you should go in and observe it and then try to make inferences from there as to why it might work. It's a really interesting topic uh, to try to make sense of it. Right. I, I think, pe I think people would be served. All coaches would be served by understanding a polarized model and how it could work and how it works and how it could work and how it does work in endurance training, just for the appreciation of it, just to understanding like, okay, this is interesting. This is an interesting way of doing it. Um, and just in like, again, the idea that you have some of the best endurance athletes in the entire world only doing intensive work two to three days a week, maybe depending on how many sessions they have, you just think of that. You're like, okay, so these are the best cross country skiers, best runners potentially. 
and they only really go hard based on this standard two to three times a week. I think that's interesting for people to think about and go, well, I'm not elite and I go hard every day. <laughs> right. And just for coaches to go, why is that? And just try to tweeze that out. Um, yeah. It, uh, I th yeah, I think, I think we did a, I think, I think people should be able to understand what we're trying to get at. Uh, and I think our ruling would be for me, I would vote uh, that likely no, an a polarized approach will not work optimally in CrossFit. What about you? I think it's a, uh, a piece of the puzzle and a principle that you should take into account when programming and understanding how people respond to the training. But it doesn't, like it, it doesn't work for weightlifting. It doesn't work for gymnastics. It doesn't work for the constituent parts of CrossFit individually. It's a part of the puzzle, piece of the puzzle. I, I would say no also. Um, but I think if, you know, if there's any coaches listening to this podcast that they could see the value in doing easy work periodically where it fits, obviously then it's not going to be a polarized model of 80, 20, but there is benefit in having your athletes slow down, do some easy days mixed in with their regular CrossFit style training. And, I, and the last point, which Tom, oh, sorry, Tom Scott just mentioned, which I think it would help people understand is they would be more open to saying, okay, when because this is where we introduce this in, uh, in trying to teach people program design. Like one of the, to me, one of the best ways to introduce doing double days to people is having the second session of the day be easy. If they're not used to doing double days, uh, it's like just, okay, let's, let's train, let's have three double days a week, but all three of the double days right now, the PM sessions are going to be easy sessions just because I want you to just go and do it because when you start investigating the intensity requirements and the response and recovery requirements to those types of sessions, you go, okay, this is probably the easiest way to introduce the behavior of training twice a day on three days a week without having really, uh, really big consequences for the following session the next day. Uh, and it's important for coaches to just know that and not just go, yeah, I know what easy sessions are, but you need to know what easy sessions are. You need to be able to quantify them, uh, in various forms you need to understand that it works a lot for other people but then you need to be able to design it appropriately but which we mentioned already you need to be able to quantify the intensity uh, appropriately for that person uh, and that's easier that's a lot easier said than done because uh, a lot of times i see like oh this is my recovery session it's like well this, there's no recovery session it's either a training session or it's a rest day um if you're doing easy training it still has the training word in it it's training um yeah. So there's, there's, I, I think, I think oh, the overall answer is yeah, no, it, I don't think it's the best strategy or it's even really a, an optimal strategy for developing a really good fitness athlete. But I think there's lots to be learned from there. Um, which leads us into our next conversation uh, about the concept of critical power, critical speed and critical torque, which we'll talk about next time. So critical twerk, did you say? Or torque? Yeah, I think so. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the episode and know someone else that will, please share it with them as it helps to grow our reach. If you haven't done so already, please leave us a review wherever you listen. For questions about topics covered on the show or topics we haven't covered yet, send those questions to spiraloutpodcast at gmail.com. We do read the emails and have some topics that were submitted by listeners and we plan to cover them in the near future. You can follow at optimum underscore performance underscore training on Instagram to find out when new episodes are available. 
And last but not least, if you guys are in Calgary, come by and check out the gym. We offer individual design as well as personal training for those close by. If you live far, head over to OptimumPerformanceCalgary.com to get information on remote coaching and athlete camps. Catch you guys in two weeks.